This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Running on audio editing bandwidth and yes, Injera, supplied by Pelgrane Press. Coming to you live from the eminently vice presidential state of Indiana. Deep in the heart of Indianapolis's convention district, rich as it is in story and song. Taking up just one hour of the best four days in gaming at Gen Con. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode includes... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Time travel. Tradecraft. Cinema. Occultism. And of course, food. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. So, welcome everybody. Uh, we would like to, as usual, thank our Patreon backers who are uh, uh, with us at patreon.com, Ken and Robin. Are there any Patreon backers in the house tonight? Please, everyone, give a big round of applause. <laughs> to the people who so generously stop us from looking at the math of how much time this podcast takes us. As is traditional on the show, uh, when we do it live, we begin with the legendary Nerd Trope cards, supplied to us by listener Kalev Tate. And here are the Nerd cards, here are the Trope cards. For those of you who do not know, we will just do it and you will see what it is. (laughs) The Nerd card is... Napoleon. Napoleon. I feel like we've done Napoleon. I feel that way too. I think we've done him too. Yeah. Do you shuffle these? Uh, well, I cut them. Let's see, everyone expects the Spanish Inquisition. We've done them too. Uh, no, no, we haven't. We haven't done that one. That one. That one. This, this is akin to choosing. Knights. <laughs> the Knights Hospitaller. Hey. And swashbuckling. That's actually not even nerd troping. That's just knightly hospitalering. And Greco-Roman gods. There we are. <laughs> Okay. The Knights Hospitaller, as I'm sure you all know, were the hated rivals of the Templars. The Templars and the Knights Hospitaller were rivals for clients. They were rivals for trade routes into the uh, Levant. They were rivals for uh, the rights to guard magical shrines. And uh, in their desperation at being outfoxed at every turn by the heroic, glorious, and grail-infused Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller turned... To an older religion, that of the Greco-Roman gods. Uh, the Knights Hospitaller began with Asclepius, the god of uh, healing, who 
was worshipped by sleeping in his temple to be incubated. That's what they called it. You would be incubated. The god Asclepius would possess you, tell you how to heal uh, your disease or the disease of the sick person right. who you're trying to heal. Giving you his hospitality. Exactly. And you would wake up and be infused with the power of Asclepius. And being Knights Hospitaller, that's how it starts. They're like, well, we, if we can cure more people, then we're going to have a leg up on the Templars with their stupid grail. Yeah, they just kill people. They don't heal them afterwards. <laughs> Unless with the grail, but that's special cases and right. it turns into a resurrected Baphomet mummy. And that's a different topic. Anyway... <laughs> So they began incubating in temples of Asclepius. Now, the trouble with that plan, you'd say, well, what's wrong with that? A god of healing, helping people, everyone gets healing. The trouble is they are knights hospitaller, not archaeologists hospitaller. And so not all temples of Asclepius are actually temples of Asclepius. Some may be temples of Aphrodite or Jupiter or Mars or any number of gods because they all pretty much look, look the same after you've smashed their face off for being unmuslim, which is what happens in pretty much that stretch of the Levant, hence the Crusades in the first place. So the Knights Hospitaller would go to sleep in the fane of what they thought was Asclepius and be possessed by different gods, which is all well and good because they all provide magical powers. The, uh, the internal uh, order of the Knights is Corrupted, you might say, suffused, certainly incubated with the with the Greco-Roman gods, and that gives them finally the magic power to overturn the Templars in 1307 in France. The Templars flee off to the Templar refuge in Nova Scotia, which again, not, different topic. The knights remain wired into the heads of Europe, the European states. They take over all the Templar properties, riffle through all the Templar books and and treasures and documents to uncover new ways to worship the gods. And of course, the Templars, having used the grail, have been tied into a whole different non-Christian tradition because they've been tied into the whole Arthurian uh, mythos. And so the uh, Templars have been using Druid power as opposed to Greco-Roman power. And if there's one thing we all know about the Druids, it is that Julius Caesar slaughtered a whole bunch of them and other Romans slaughtered the rest of them much later. So the Druid power of the Templars funnels up into the Knights Hospitaller over the next 400 years. The Knights Hospitaller are, are uh, becoming soft and fat. Uh, they get thrown off the island of Rhodes, which is a crucial uh, spot for the worship of Apollo, who is uh, the god of sunlight and uh, magic and healing and music and not being taken in by a bunch of druids. And uh, so when the, temp uh, when the castle at Rhodes falls in the 1520s, the Knights Hospitaller have to flee to Malta. Malta, as we all know, is full of Stonehenges, little um, uh, barrows and megalith tombs. Barrows and megalith tombs, like I need to tell you, Druid Central. So the Knights Hospitaller, when they flee to Malta, that is the completion of the Druid infestation of the Knightly Command. And you wind up with a secret war within the Knights Hospitaller between the Greco-Roman gods who are up in the north, ironically, in Germany and Prussia and like that, and the uh, Druids who are now in the Mediterranean and Britain. So there's a lengthy secret war between... Uh, probably, let's say, uh, Terminus, god of boundaries, because, of course, the Knights Hospitaller have that cool black and white checkered uh, line. Maybe uh, Caissa, goddess of chess. All the sort of micro-gods that no one has any defenses about because they don't show up in Ovid. So no one knows even that they're being possessed by these gods. So they're not just Greco-Roman gods. They're secret Greco-Roman gods. They're the legion of substitute Roman gods. The legion of, <laughs> the, the, the legion of extraordinarily unknown Roman gods. Ancient Rome, uh, sidebar, had a priesthood of 15 uh, flamens. Each flamen was a priest of a certain cult, and they had certain taboos and rituals that they had to do or else the god would not talk to them. Over the different distance between 400 B.C., and 100 AD, they had forgotten the name of two of their gods. 
So they still had a priesthood. It still did things. They didn't even know which God they were propitiating. Yeah, uh, yeah we worship. <coughs> yeah, you're not cleared for the God we're 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 propitiating. Yeah. just leave the sacrifices right here. So, so you pay like ten thousand gold pieces, and it turns out to be Zenu at the end. Exactly, could be. So, uh, once the Romans developed motion picture technology, that really would have taken off. Yeah. As it was, um, uh, tragedy intervened, and all they got was magic lanterns by which they could enter a um, uh, a hypnagogic state and commune with archetypal beings from beyond time. But again, that's a different topic. So the um, uh, the, uh, the the war between the Greco-Roman uh, unknown gods and the Druid gods uh, culminates, of course, in the 18th century and the rise of the Bavarian Illuminati. The Bavarian Illuminati symbol is a pyramid with a mystical eye on top. The pyramid indicates Egypt. The mystical eye indicates all-knowingness. So once uh, that begins, both the Druids and the uh, Greco-Roman gods think, oh my god, a third player, and they go into sort of uh, DEFCON 1 crisis mode and launch an immediate full-scale assault on each other. That, as it happens, is the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and the great catastrophes of the 20th century, which are finally over, leaving the Knights Hospitaller running the CIA and an ambulance service, and the Druids running... California. I guess, in California, yes. So at the end, both sides are devastated by the war, the gods have been completely forgotten and are working in total secret, Uh, so it is a conspiracy that literally, much like the ancient Roman uh, Flamens, does not know what it is conspiring to do anymore. So it's working by rote, right? So it's a. So it's this like is a, a Thomas Pynchon conspiracy. Exactly. It, it's, a, it's a hollow body. Uh, uh, the hermit crab has been in the shell, but then he went off to do something else, and the shell is just still moving around, collecting power and collecting pieces. And the fact that it is opposed by hippie druids in California means that it cannot do that with full efficiency. So we're, we're left with two sort of robotic conspiracies, or one robotic conspiracy and one uh, a biotic conspiracy that are merely awaiting... Oh, I don't know who... Robin, would it be the player characters? It would be waiting. It could, yeah. could be the player characters. And the, perhaps a culminating event in November. A, perhaps a culminating event. <laughs> perhaps if we could think of some symbolic contest between <laughs> decrepit human-sacrificing monsters <laughs> and horrific entities that we know not even the name or nature of, <laughs> what would that be? Well, I'm sure it'll come to us. Oh, the new Big Brother house. That's There we go. Yeah, That's yeah. I knew it had something to do with reality with, TV. And with Big Brother. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, the, um, uh, the, the culminating event will come uh, this fall to CBS, and uh, you, uh, the player characters, must discover the control routes for this conspiracy, because if you can, you control a pretty powerful conspiracy, and perhaps you can head everything off the pass, and um, uh, the druids will feel the burn, and um, uh, the, uh, the Greco-Roman gods, as is their want, right. will feel the Johnson. Right. <laughs> well, the, 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 the druids, I believe, have... Uh... <laughs> That's, that's not the same as my dropping the F-bomb in every live episode. Ken, you may have noticed the presence of, of children in the audience. Uh, so, ch- children? It's never too learned to learn about former New Mexico governors. Exactly. Uh, and so, pot ranching. So, so basically, the, if you work for the Druids, uh, you get plus two versus microaggression. Right, yes. <laughs> uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, that is your nerd trope of this live episode.
Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. So now we move on to the uh, question-asking portion of the episode. And uh, as always, we will forget to restate your question, uh, although we will valiantly attempt it for the first little while. And then later we'll get excited because we'll have something funny to say where there will be timing. But then our audio editor will uh, will belabor us if we do not restate the question for the microphone. So when we forget to restate the question, all of you yell, restate the question. So practice now. Uh, we've just, uh, yes, the answer to that is... Restate the question. Okay, Thank thanks you. you folks. So the first question, I believe, is in the back. No, you're just leaning against the wall. <laughs> the question is in the front. Okay. Uh, best and worst Lovecraftian-inspired film. The question is best and worst Lovecraftian-inspired film. Well, my favorite is still Reanimator, for sure. Well, Lovecraftian-inspired, of course, the answer is Alien is the best. Because it is Lovecraftian-inspired while not being Lovecraftian. So, an alien rather than aliens? Yes, because, because Aliens less... is an inferior film. <laughs> oh. And less Lovecraftian. Right. It's certainly a different genre. It's a war film rather than a horror film. And it's film. a fine film. It's just that Alien is an is a epical masterpiece of a film. Uh, given that it was built from Mario Bava and H.P. Lovecraft, how could it not be? Right. As, as least favorite, I, I generally tend to assume a Lovecraftian film is not so great until informed otherwise. That's so a I, legitimate assumption. That's my screening process. <laughs> but Ken, perhaps you have been unwary and gone where film goers should not go. It is not necessarily unwariness, but it is... Um, uh, in the spirit of the grim workings of fate, yeah. as in a Lovecraftian After all, story. you did watch Dracula 3000. I watched Dracula. And, and I have watched a worse movie than that. There is a film, and I use the term very loosely, <laughs> called Cthulhu Mansion, which is execrable. Uh, the, 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 the late, great Gene Siskel uh, said uh, of one particular film, I forget which one, I think it was North, that it uh, should have been snipped up and used as guitar picks. Um, the makers of Cthulhu Mansion uh, got around that by releasing their film uh, straight to VHS so it could not even be used as guitar picks it is an utterly useless excrescence of a movie uh, do not watch Cthulhu Mansion ladies and gentlemen if you want to watch a sort of the so why is it so terrible it, it, well first of all there's no mansion and no Cthulhu it's two lives <laughs> it's 
it's just murky shouting. It's, it's like seventy-eight minutes of murky shouting. It's it, it's not a it's not an attractive experience on any level. It's it. I mean, it's so bad that it has descended into that sort of nub nub level of badness that Theodore Rozak uh, said all modern film would turn into in Flickr, which is a great novel, and everyone should read that instead of watching Cthulhu Mansion. Uh, next question. Well, thank you, everybody. <laughs> this has been Ken and Robin. Okay, now you're no longer leaning against the wall. No, I know I'm leaning against the wall because I thought it was a question. Um, so you guys talk about film a lot, um, and uh, particularly sort of the interesting uh, diversity of film that you see across the global spectrum. Um, and one thing that you guys haven't really talked that much about, I know it's been mentioned briefly, is sort of the Nollywood, the Nigerian uh, film group that's been going on. I was wondering what your guys' opinion was of the, uh, the Nollywood movement as it's sort of developed over the last decade and a half. So the question is, what do we think of uh, Nollywood film? Uh, the uh, one Nollywood, f- I've seen one Nollywood film uh, at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival and a documentary about Nollywood, and the documentary was very interesting. An interesting phenomenon of sort of a grassroots come up from nowhere uh, filmmaking culture. I will get more opportunities, should I avail myself of it, uh, to see Nollywood films because this year's uh, TIFF's regional spotlight is on Nollywood. So we'll see if 10 years later there's anything that I'm willing to risk going to see. Um, my understanding, uh, not having seen it, is that the best place to start for what might be a good Nollywood film is a film called October 1st, which is on Netflix. But I've yet to actually check it out. Have, and your knowing nod suggests that you have seen October 1st? It's, it's good and uh, exceptionally different, I would say. Probably okay. Probably okay. Well, those are two excellent reasons to watch October 1st. I have seen the documentary that Robin has seen. So... I will defer to my learned colleague. Uh, next question. Paul. Um, would you compare and contrast the approach to anti-horror activities of Delta Green and the Ordo Veritatis from Esoterus? The question is, how do Ordo Veritatis from Esoterists and Delta Green from Delta Green compare and contrast? Robin? Uh, I think one of the big differences is that uh, the, in the Esoteris, the Ordo Veritatis is depicted as an oasis of safety, that you can rely on them not to burn you. They're never the Mr. Johnsons who screw you over. That, uh, you know, they have a whole you know, facility where former agents are now you know, left to gibber, but they're, they're fed really well. You know, they're taken care of. Uh, that the, uh, the bad guys in the Esoteris are uh, so uh, bad that I wanted a reliable backstop where you could feel competent enough going against them and that you wouldn't have to worry about uh, getting burned. or uh, And, and uh, very often when a new writer pitches something for the esoteric, they, they, you've never thought of this, the Ordo Veritatis turns on the... Please. No, that's, that's not what we're doing here. Whereas Delta Green is like a real intelligence agency, and so they'll mess you over hard and uh, leave you flapping in the wind when uh, it's convenient to them. Or when they need to. Right, yeah. The difference between, I mean, the, the structure is that also Ordo Veritatis is an open conspiracy among many governments. Uh, I mean, not, you know, the president may not know about Ordo Veritatis, but the head of the CIA definitely knows about Ordo Veritatis. And he says, you, you, and you, you go work with Ordo Veritatis. Good for you. You're cleared to do it. Hurrah. You're saving the world from uh, outer dark monsters. In the Delta Green universe, even when Delta Green was an, a, a sanctioned part of the government, it wasn't an open part of the government. It was code word controlled. You had 
a very insular culture that was brought out of the paranoia immediately after the Innsmouth raid. And then, of course, after 1970, when Delta Green is disbanded by the Joint Chiefs, it becomes even more paranoid and insular, and uh, it becomes a, literally an illegal conspiracy against the government. Now, in the post-9-11 world, some of it is an open, openly, not openly acknowledged, but again, restored to the level of, of secret project. Some of it is still a cowboy conspiracy, so it's conspiring against itself. So the world of Delta Green, in Delta Green, has a bureaucratic quality to it because the intent is to illustrate the futility of action, and what better way than the United States federal government to do that? <laughs> Order Veritatis, it's about the importance of struggle and maintaining rationality and optimism, and what better to do that than a Canadian writer? So, um, the... Uh, Peace, order, good government, and fighting monsters. And fighting the utter dark. <laughs> so, uh, Delta Green has baked into it the pre-knowledge that your efforts will fail because it is explicitly Lovecraftian. And therefore, the structure of Delta Green as portrayed in the various source books reflects that Lovecraftian reality. And the, so the real difference is between laws and Lovecraft, not between you know one set of researchers saying this about federal bureaucracy right. and Robin saying something else. Right. The, because in the esoteric, you're not doomed in the esoteric, but you're, the idea is that you will muddle along to an extent to just stave off the tearing open of the membrane, uh, one adventure, one adventure, one adventure. The other is always yes. going to be kind of okay. And that's definitely Canadian writer versus right. uh, American writers. The, 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 the OV is like the fire department. If there was no fire department, eventually the whole city would burn down. Yeah. But the fire department is not, well, we're doomed. Here we are, going into the endless struggle against fire. Right. <laughs> well, and that's the thing also. The, you know, the, the outer dark, unlike the Cthulhu mythos, those demons care enough about us to want to eat us. Right? They're not, it's not just about... The theme is not cosmic indifference. It's, you know, it's an outer threat that wants to take all the worst things about us and turn us inside enabled out. Enabled male malevolence. Right. right. So in order to have the... Uh, the protagonist against that enemy, it has to assume there has to be a payoff for avoiding fear and cognitive dissonance. Uh, next question. Uh, so I'm part of a group that streams RPGs on Twitch every week, including some of your own. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you have opinions or advice maybe about moving the role-playing act from something that's just for the people doing it to something that can be exciting for an audience and maybe like a game that would be good for showing off. So the question is, what do old codgers think about the Twitch these days? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, role-playing games are super internalized. And, you know, people compare role-playing games to jazz, that there's no score, no one's playing the, uh, a set, set of music, but they all know the tune and they improv along. And as uh, your performers get better and better, the performance is greater than some of the parts, and it gets better and better. And that a role-playing session is not even a jazz concert, it's a jazz jam session. So it's after the concert's over, and the, the artists have all come back into the green room, and they've been herbed up, and they're like, you know, let's just play a little, you know, um, uh, take the A-train, and then they just go off. So obviously you can do jazz for an audience. I mean, you can't now, but you used to be able to do jazz for an audience. <laughs> Not a large paying audience, but, but still. And so the goal is to, I would suspect, do like jazz performers do, have riffs, have things that you know will bring the audience in, not so much like crowd pleasers, but crowd engagers. And if obviously it helps if your uh, players are personable, uh, can think on their feet fast. Uh, the One Shot podcast obviously uses... Uh, 
Chicago improvisational comedians as the players. When I'm not running it, then it's all game designers. Um, and you can tell the difference by listening to me run it versus listening to James run for his improv buddies. And one of them, someone on, on the, on, I liked it, but it was really dry for a one-shot podcast. Yes, that's because it was like a regular game session. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of it is casting, just like in a jazz quintet. You know, you want everyone to be able to really play their instrument in a, in a good way. And a lot of it is playing out instead of playing in. And I don't know to what extent those are different habits or to what extent those are just taking the habits you've already used just to uh, amuse four people and just sort of playing them differently in the way that now I'm amusing 400, 4,000, 4 million people potentially. So, you know, again, keeping in mind that I am uh, an elderly game designer, not one of the, the, the hip kids today, that would seem to be sort of on a formal level how you would do it. I bitterly resent... Uh, role-playing games on Twitch because it is taking a thing that I always say and making it wrong, which I, I think is most unfair uh, because I've always uh, said that the fascinating thing about role-playing is that uh, there is no separation between participant and audience, right? That the people doing it are also the audience for the people doing it. But now, bizarrely, there are people who want to watch other people doing it. So uh, in all seriousness, that's really fascinating. Uh, on a level of spreading the role-playing meme, it's super useful. On the uh, how do I play this game, uh, what am I trying to do as a sort of a tutorial, it's uh, you know an incredible uh, boon. And I had no idea that anything I designed was being done on Twitch. So hit me up with some links, people. Um, and so I, I think it's a, an interesting development because I never would have thought, first of all, you know, Twitch started with let's watch other people play video games. I, uh, why would anyone do that? But apparently many, many people want to do that. Um, and it will be interesting to see to what extent games that have a higher uh, performative value become more popular because you can do them on Twitch and therefore gain uh, uh, social cachet or the satisfaction of entertaining people. Um, that uh, excites me because, hmm, drama system sounds like it's ideal for that format. That would be great, right? Um, as opposed to, you know, something that is very crunchy with a lot, you know, it's like, okay, now we're going to throw our uh, 147 dice from my champion's character, and we're going to count the D6s for X amount of... So uh, I think it opens up a sort of a fascinating vista that uh, we uh, all have to try and understand. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric 
metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Uh, next question. So, uh, walking through the dealer's room, uh, Cthulhu mythos stuff across game types, game genres, it's, it seems to be everywhere. Are we at peak mythos, and is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, so the question is, are we at peak mythos, and if we were, would that be bad? I don't believe that we are at peak mythos, because I don't believe that every game space has done the mythos correctly yet. Uh, once a game space does the mythos correctly, the audience rewards that with um, uh, attention and uh, dollars, and then the community rewards that by uh, slavishly imitating them, um, as I have Sandy. So you have a lot of very visible space if you go around into that, you know, around that same dealer's hall. You say that's good, but it could be better. That's wrong, but glad you're making a nickel. That's hilarious and pointless, or whatever you're saying. So there's room for improvement within the niche, and that improvement will grow the audience and will grow the imitators. So I don't think functionally we are at, at peak mythos. I think that we are beginning to get a sense amongst consumers that mythos, you know, they call it the bacon of gaming. And you're, and you're like, well, I'm glad bacon is available, but I'd really rather not have it on every damn thing I eat, say, foreigners. Um, uh, bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Bacon is indifferent to you. Yes, right. <laughs> so the um, uh, so I, I feel that there is a a sense of satiety in the audience, but the audience would be angry if there was none of that around. So it's the same way that if you're not hungry, you don't go into the restaurant. If you are hungry, you really want food at the restaurant. Cthulhu is like that. People when they want it, they want it, and when they are not in the immediate mood for it, they think, why is it available? So I, I think that there's a, a a sense people are thinking that it's peak, but we're not peak. Right. Uh, because, for example, uh, have we reached peak elf, right? <laughs> people have not gotten tired of elves. Uh, I don't think they're going to get tired of uh, the, the mythos. Uh, yesterday, a, a family came by the table, and a young boy looked up at their uh, mom and dad and said, Daddy, what's Cthulhu? And they were like, they had to retreat. He knows who Cthulhu is. We've, we've taught him properly. What are you talking <laughs> he's, he's just showing off. Um, and so uh, I think that uh, you can't possibly reach peak uh, anything in any of our subgenres until it breaks through to pop culture, right? Once there is, uh, there are a couple of actual successful Lovecraftian movies, big budget movies, and there's an AMC uh, series of uh, exploring the dreamlands. Uh, if you want Dolly in it, call us AMC. Um, that that uh, you know, and there's big uh, board games that are based on the licensed versions of those. You could possibly talk about Peak Cthulhu, but I think it's going to be you know uh, evergreen, as in evergreen and with tentacles. Uh, next question uh, in the back. Uh, I've really enjoyed consume media, and thanks to the people that make that happen. 
I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more of what you all thought about Stranger Things. Ooh. Ooh, okay. He'd love to hear about Stranger Things, Robin. He would. Uh, I think we're going to do uh, a whole segment on Stranger Things a little while uh, on, uh, because I think there's a lot to talk about. But uh, in brief, uh, I think the great uh, one of the great things, we'll each mention one great thing about it, and then right. we'll come back to it in a full segment on the regular show. Um, so uh, I think structurally it's very interesting in the way that it has it dovetails all of these different parallel narratives and has, uh, you know, f- basically, is it th- three or four investigations going on at once? Three. Three. Um, although the mom might count as... Well, the mom and the sheriff are one. Oh, right. Um, so it's got the mysteries being solved by three groups of people who don't know that the other ones are also finding other clues until they all kind of converge at the end, which I think is really interesting and would be a challenging structure to do in role-playing. It might require, you know, a sort of a parallel... You know, here's the, you know, three desktops with different Google Hangouts going on at the same time or something like that. But uh, uh, structurally, it's just a really great example of everything that, it, that it's trying to do. What's one quick, cool thing about Stranger Things that you want to preview? Uh, there is a guy on the, uh, on the Internet, where they keep guys, um, <laughs> who has a just almost orgasmic blog entry about the font choices in Stranger Things. And I think that that's emblematic. I mean, first of all, the fonts are amazing that they, that they use. The, the Stephen King cover text font as the main title, but the John Carpenter credits font as the, as the credits font. That was a good combination. The fonts are well tweaked to be exactly what they want as it was just ripped off the, off the front of the novel. And that is indicative of the level of production design that went into the movie because if you, I mean, obviously everyone here is far too young to have grown up in the 1980s. You're all just beautiful summer children. <laughs> but for me, literally every wall in that show was familiar to me. And not just the walls that had Evil Dead poster and the Thing poster, the physical wall, the type of paneling. None of it was fakey, right? It was all actually, yes, I was in that basement or right. the, a basement exactly. That is the gaming hut is that basement, yes. basically. And so... Um, For all the, we know, Peter Frampton was on the other side it, it, of his he home. Could have been, he could have been somewhere in there. Um, uh, well, I mean, the, 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 the older kid uh, was, was, was too cool to be into Peter Frampton. He'd hidden his copy of the Double Live album. Yes. So Will was like, no, no one ever listened to Peter Frampton. And all the other little kids were like, whatever, man. Anyway, the, um, but that is emblematic of the level of production design that, I mean, we look at your hobbits and whatnot, and we say, oh my God, some guy, crazy person in New Zealand built 850,000 Gondorian war swords. How great is that? That's great, but even really garbage movies wind up with superb production design, and you don't really recognize it until you start watching older movies that are historicals. And it was like, well, it's the same horse. Put the Western saddle on him, no one's gonna know. It's the same wall. Just um, uh, put a map of Europe in right. World War II on it, no one's gonna know. But now, production design has become so much better in almost all cases than the movies it is designing for, that when you have something that is even better than that and absolutely perfectly tuned to the era, although obviously people are like, ah, oh, look at that. that, that book wasn't out yet. In the same way that they, you know, they have selectric here too there's early. There's lots of stuff that passed uh, the test with my wife, who's a huge critic of uh, even slight anachronisms. Yeah. Uh, and the, one of the great things about it too, in the costume design, is that 
it was how people actually dressed in the 80s, not how they dressed in movies About and, the and 80s. videos yeah, right. that were shot during the 80s. Yeah, someone, uh, someone um, yeah, because the Duffer brothers are both little children people too. They didn't live through the 80s either. And so they must have found like an old person in a cave and asked them, <laughs> or, what was it like in the before time? Or, or perhaps some high school yearbooks from Indiana high schools. Perhaps, uh, yes. The, and so the, um, uh, the, the level of, of, uh, of detail there and quality there is not always indicative of a level of detail and quality in other uh, films. I'm looking at you, uh, Troy, but, uh, and you, Alexander. And, and anyway, um, but I'm sort of mean to Troy and Alexander sitting in the audience here. Yeah, well, <laughs> quite frankly, they can step it up. Um, but, I, but I think that level of, of, of fidelity and, and, uh, and desire to bring you almost physically into that time and space is something that it does really well. Okay. Well, this is in danger of turning into that segment, so next question. Um, I'm wondering what sort of time incorporated operation is going on based on the strange picture of Mr. Hunt that was in the book this year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question is, those of you who have seen your Gen Con program see a, a svelte young puppy of a Ken Height, not the flattering uh, author photo that I took of him that he usually uh, uses that is more contemporary. Yes, that somehow conceals the ravages of time. It's the well, ro- there's, Robin that, photo of Dorian Gray. Right. Well, it, it, just below the frame, there's, there's uh, uh, poutine wafting up to Ken, rejuvenating him in that, <laughs> in that image. Poutine and smoked meat. Yes. Uh, uh, the, 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 the time incorporated... Uh, Thing I suspect was a prank on behalf of the uh, uh, Industry Insider staff because I, this is the first year I was not on the Industry Insider Committee because I was too busy last year really to do it. And they were like, are you still going to be that busy? Because if you're going to be that busy, maybe you just don't do it. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. So I was not on the committee. So I think that what that meant was that they had free reign to you know give the old, thanks, Ken. Um, yeah. But in terms of my temporal shenanigan, what, what, what that involves is... Uh, some work that I did in the late 90s before a, a, a pharmaceutical concern and they wanted me to test out the, uh, the, the, the formulation and uh, let's just say it, it works and then it really doesn't work. So that was going to be an accurate picture. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Perhaps one of the women in the crowd would like to pose a question to prove to the listeners at home that there are women in the crowd. Anybody? Yes. There we go. So what thing do I wish that I'd created that I hadn't? Right. Magic the Gathering. (laughs) An excellent choice, sir. (laughs) I, for one, would have been proud to have created Pokemon. (laughs) Uh, uh, Slightly closer to the role-playing space, I feel that I would uh, be able to die happy if I'd made Fiasco. Um, I don't have the capacity to do it. Uh, Jason Morningstar is a tremendous game designer, and with most of Jason Morningstar's designs, I look at something like Grey Ranks and I say, this is a magnificent design. This is an A-list design. If I had wanted to subject myself to the miseries of making a game about child soldiers in the Polish resistance, I could have made 
a gray ranks. Maybe not that gray ranks, but a gray ranks. Night Witches. It's a game about you know female pilots during on the in the Soviet Air Force during uh, World War II. If I'd wanted to do that research and done that thing and looked at that structurally, I look at Jason's structural capabilities and they are very very good. But I think I could have done a Night Witches. There is no way in hell I could have done a fiasco. What he did with Steve uh, Sagetti is just it's category breaking. We still don't even know decade a decade later enough about it to rip it off. That's how good it is. So I would like to have done Fiasco because I would like to have that, you know, sort of door of perception opened up in my pineal gland that opens to that wonderful world uh, that he accessed. That is That would be a tremendous thing. Uh, a game that uses a skill set that I do not have is Fall of Magic because it involves interacting with a beautiful physical object, and I would never be able to create a beautiful object even in prototype form uh, that was uh, worth interacting with. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. Uh, next question. So the question is, uh, we're finding Ashen Stars too easy. How do I make it more difficult? Which is uh, the problem to have. It's always easier to make things tougher than... Uh, so is it because the investigations are too easy or the... The investigations. So how to make the mysteries more complicated. Uh, so uh, the assumption in Ashen Stars is that the uh, you basically kind of find out what's going on and you, it leads you to a moral dilemma, and that's the interesting thing, is resolving the moral dilemma. So I would uh, look at the structure of some of the other gumshoe games that uh, make the mystery harder with more moving parts and are more about sort of forensics and figuring out who, who killed who, and just have more complicating threads and more things that you have to do to talk, you know, make the trail of clues longer before you hit the, the moral dilemma at the end. Um, when... Uh, Cthulhu Confidential comes out uh, around Christmas time. Uh, take a look at those because those—that's uh, the first one-to-one -one product, and that has uh, mysteries designed for one GM and one player. And those mysteries are somewhat more complicated. So if you look at the way that those are structured, and then you know zoom back to make it not Cthulhu Noir, but instead Ashen Star Space Opera and not a single player, but instead multiple players. Uh, you know, making mysteries more confusing is always way easier than making them less confusing. So add more moving parts to the mystery and more things that they have to uncover before they figure out what's going on. 
Um, my advice would be go back and rewatch the original series episode Journey to Babel, which is a murder mystery or a, 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 a violent assault, felonious assault mystery, really. Um, no, there is a murder in it. Uh, so it's a murder mystery that also has four or three or four other crises going on simultaneously. And part of the magic of that script is that any one of these crises could be solved by the main bridge crew with relatively little trouble, but all of them are happening simultaneously. So you've got the Orion attack, you've got the uh, Tellarites and the Andorians at, at arms, you've got the murderer, you've got uh, Sarek with his blood condition. All of those things are happening, and every one of them has to be solved by one character who is busy being disabled by the previous mystery. So just the, the structure of that is one of the best episodes of television I think ever written. And if you watch it, it is a great way to add lived complexity and difficulty to your game without necessarily having to think really hard about making the mystery harder. Because again, the mystery of who killed that uh, Andorian guy is not super hard to figure out. Or the, he's, or the he's an Andorian. Lots of people want to kill him. Yeah, right, or the, or the Tellarite, rather. And that is exactly uh, true. But the road to solving the mystery is peppered with uh, beautiful obstacles. So that's what I would, I would advise that as well. Uh, next question. Um, in our, you know, we've, there's been a lot of development in story games over the last 10 years. You know, we've kind of got this dichotomy, or maybe it's a false dichotomy, that's going on between mechanics. Um, you know, crunchy versus you know story based. But what I think there are a lot of people very dedicated to that dichotomy between crunchy and story based. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what would your what would what what is something in light of the way that you're seeing people play games today? What is an underused mechanic for uh, role playing games? Um, let's say story based role playing games that you that you think is underused. That you, you think it should be used more. Or could really benefit in light of the way people play games today. So uh, the question is: Given the ten-year uh, development of story games, what is an underused element of story games that we think should be uh, overused? Well, I mean, if you look at Knights Black Agents, I picked a lot of them and put them in Knights Black Agents. So I took the Push Pyramid out of Blowback. I took the MOS out of Wilderness, Wilderness of Mirrors. I uh, took plot points and uh, the conspiracy construction out of uh, Fate and Burning Empires and recycled all those and put them in a nice black agent. So I think that gives you an indication of things that I think are already underused. Of those, I would say probably the plot stress mechanic that I think Chris Birch invented for Starblazer Adventures for Fate is one of the ones that has the broadest applicability to other games. And it is just that the plot also has hit points. And when people damage the plot, you know, the, the, the Orion attacks are hitting the ship, and if you don't do anything about it, that's going to chalk off the plot's marks, and at some point, the ship blows up. And that's just the way it is. And the abstraction of that from, well, the ship has taken these hit points of damage to these systems to just, this is how critical things are, is a really great abstraction, and I think it can be really used. It can be used in horror, it can be used in adventure, it can be used in almost any kind of role-playing situation. It can be used in romance games. It's like, this is what's going to happen to your relationship unless you do something to make it better. It, 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 any number of things could use that plot stress mechanic, and I think it's a really terrific one, and it's even underused in Fate, which is where it came in, so it's super underused everywhere else. And I sort of borrowed it for heat, but that was, you know, that's just using a tiny sliver of its capacity. Um, and those of you who, who listen to the show know that uh, Ken is much more of a scholar 
of what else is going on and that he can uh, steal from. So uh, I will uh, let his answer stand. Uh, next question. Uh, I'm about 30 episodes into running Dracula dossier at this point, and I've been able to introduce, um, in a subtle way, Frankenstein and the Mummy. I was wondering if you had any advice to introduce some of the other Universal Studios creatures sort of to make cameo appearances. So the question is, how do you add mummies and Frankensteins to Dracula dossier? Well, he's already added mummies and Frankensteins. I think he wants to add wolfmans and creatures from the Black Lagoon. Uh, right. So um, I would add the wolfman just the way that Universal did. And the classic uh, example, believe it or not, is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But in that movie, Lawrence Talbot is a private investigator who is trying to hunt down Dracula and stop him. And he, uh, Dracula, meanwhile, is maneuvering to have the Frankenstein's monster brought into his possession so he can use it to further his goal of whatever it, his goal happens to be. Uh, I think to dominate the brain surgery business or whatever it is. It's not particularly <laughs> important. But Lawrence Talbot is this sort of player character guy, and he sort of roams around Europe, and he sends telegrams, and he tries desperately to intercept Dracula's coffin. And because it's a comedy, he's played as a sad sack. And also because Lon Chaney Jr. was probably drunk the entire time they were filming it, he's played as a sad sack. But I think having the Wolfman as a guy who is bit by one of Dracula's werewolves and is controlling it with every quack scientific method he can find in um, House of uh, Dracula, there's a doctor who says he can cure werewolfism, and that's why Lon Chaney is there. And Dracula, for no reason whatsoever, says, oh, I'm tired of being a vampire, cure my vampirism. And so then they meet and fight and blah, blah, blah. But the notion that Lon Chaney has been going from mad scientist to mad scientist across backlot Europe, trying to get his werewolfism brought under control long enough to defeat Dracula, that's a powerful story arc. And since he's a werewolf, he could have been active in 1940 and still be alive and still be Lon Chaney today. Larry Talbot, you don't understand. Um, and I think he would be... Or, or, he's, or he's been in 12-step and wants to tell you all about it. Right, yes. <laughs> it has to tell you about a higher power, which unfortunately is Fenris, Ulf, Lord of the Wolves that will destroy us. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I think you could have Lawrence Talbot as sort of a shadowy figure, and then depending on your player's tolerance for that kind of thing, which seems to be high, um, you could even call him Lawrence Talbot and say that that was something that got you know slipped into the, um, uh, into the universal screenplays by some Edom leak during the 1940 operation. Uh, for the creature of the Black Lagoon, that strikes me as the kind of thing uh, that uh, one of the other national programs that is worried about Dracula tries to do. So maybe there's no American vampire, but they definitely went down to Brazil and uh, found themselves a, uh, a gill man, and they said, I'll bet this guy could fight Dracula. He's a prehistoric monster. And so they've been sort of training up the gill man to be an anti-Dracula warrior, but as we all know, um, when you train up a monster to be an anti-anything warrior, you're buying more trouble than you're selling. So I would I would put uh, the Gilman as a national uh, project, and if you wanted to be the Russians, it could be in you know the Caspian Sea or something, but uh, or in Brazil, why not? Russians have trawlers, so I, I would have the Gilman as a national resource and uh, uh, Talbot as a um, uh, as an anti-Dracula operative, who Dracula of course can control if they ever actually met because he can activate his werewolf uh, uh, blood, and then he has to just hope that his ferocity is enough to take Dracula down. Uh, we have time for uh, a couple of questions, and then we're, uh, then we're sadly out of here. So, next question. So, you both have regular gaming groups that you associate, are associated with. For some reason, I suspect that they appear quite different from each other. 
So let's get to something important. What's the best snack that's shown up at each of your gaming groups recently? <laughs> uh, so the question is, what is the best snack that has shown up at our gaming groups? I have to uh, say I'm a, I'm a heretic in that I uh, do not <gasps> snack and game at the same <gasps> time. Uh, so the uh, and I'm certainly not going to cook for them because uh, because they're I'm, filthy monsters. Uh, they're all lovely people, but I'm uh, up until the the last minute. I'm working on whatever writing game writing I'm working on in the day and trying to hit my word quota. So I'm not I don't have time to make them dinner. So they show up with like takeout and stuff. Uh, Ken, that's I I envision a a parlor of luxury by by. Uh, <laughs> Comparison. Um, I have a I have a friend um, one in, in my game group, and he works at a, a high end grocery store in Chicago. And if we've all been very good, or he wants to make sure everyone shows up because there's an important thing going on, he'll send around. And he'll say, "Oh, don't worry, guys. Um, I went to the deli counter and I got uh, the good prosciutto at the employee discount, or I went and I got the good cheese at the employee discount." And so, if we've all been very good. He will bring down, you know, the the, the, the multi-year manchego and the um, goat's milk and the rest of it, and then the the really nice uh, Iowa uh, prosciutto that's uh, based basically it's De Parma, but it's in Cedarville, Iowa, so it's a million times cheaper. Um, and if you buy it at the employee discount, I assume even cheaper than that. So uh, that's that's the good snacks. Also, Zach sometimes makes wings, which is uh, great because he is uh, a dab hand uh, culinarily. Uh, next question. So in the way, you know, you guys kind of brought, uh, so with Dreamhouse Paris that kind of brought surrealism into gaming and, uh, you know, uh, book hounds, you brought uh, you know, uh, the rare books business into gaming. Is there some, some part of uh, um, culture or history or literature that, that's not currently part of uh, um, gaming that, that you would like to, uh, to, to bring in? So the question is, what areas of culture that we have not explored do we want to explore and uh, possibly what sort of hound that would be? <laughs> a lot of the hounds that we have the idea for have already been explored. So I want to do Bloodhounds of Moscow, where you'd play uh, NKVD agents who are also discovering the mythos exists, but of course believing in supernaturalism gets you killed. So they have to cover up their own investigation, and ideally they can't... You don't want to be playing like the... Um, there's, there's branches and branches of the NKVD. There's an NKVD that's basically like just the cops. It's like the internal ministry police. And you'd probably be playing those guys, not the gulag-maintaining part of the NKVD. But you would be going around in this just as terrifying as any mythos construction government uh, and, and society trying to stop the mythos from destroying the world, even though you know, on any given day you might say, you know what, if Yogg-Sothoth took the Kremlin off, that would not be all bad. So... That would be the, the channel, but there's spies all over gaming, not least because I put them in there. Um, and then uh, we've been talking, uh, the working title, which is not going to be the title, is Booze Hounds of Blank, which would be a, a bootlegger game where you're playing rum runners, possibly in uh, Providence or Innsmouth or the Arkham uh, Kingsport, or possibly just in Chicago. And it would be the way that you have discovered that the mythos exists is you sail out onto the reef and you do deals with shadowy figures uh, for money, and sometimes you do a better deal because you can, you know, summon up a fog and prevent the revenuers from stopping you. And that that would be a fun thing. But again, that goes all the way back to um, uh, gang game and uh, what was that called? The the gang game in Chicago that was uh, the TSR game. Gangbusters. Gangbusters thank you. Um, and so that goes all the way back to gangbusters. 
So that's neither of those are really new. I would like to do something um, with, I was going to do something about electrical engineering, but I think that Charlie Strauss sort of headed me off the past by doing computer engineering in the laundry series as an analog to magic. I, I still think electrical engineering could be a good magical analogy, but Strauss has gotten so close to the edge of that that I'm not sure that's going to work. And another possibility is um, uh, uh, the oil industry, which has got enough convoluted weirdness to fuel any number of, of games, but I don't know yet what to do with it, and I'm not even sure that they would be hounds. Right, and uh, I have a couple of non-hounds projects uh, that are uh, have houndy techniques in them. Uh, so, uh, aforementioned uh, Cthulhu Confidential is a noir Cthulhu mashup, which for my section of it is set in L.A., so I was able to go through all of the uh, buildings in L.A. and find all of the uh, uh, geo-occultic significance of all of those, and that was uh, a lot of fun. And so, uh, obviously, noir is not underutilized, but I don't think we've seen a really great mashup of that uh, with the ethos of Lovecraft. And and I have been researching another relatively untouched place and time, at least for English-language gamers. And if you look at Ken and Robin Consume Media, you might be able to spot that trail of that. But I... Not sure whether I'm allowed to announce that yet. And if I am, I'll be announcing that at the Pelgrin panel, which is uh, tomorrow or the next day? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes. Although, uh, when you said uh, the, um, the sacred architecture and the, and the magic geo-architecture of L.A., obviously there hasn't really been a game about sacred architects. So, you know, not noir architecture necessarily, but just right. magical architecture. That would be a strong topic and an easy one to do if you were an architectural uh, fan and also a uh, conspiratorially minded game designer. Well, I, uh, that brings us, I think, to the uh, sadly, to the end of our time. We could sit here all day, uh, but uh, you have other games and things to get to. So, stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. On Twitter, he He's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>